Hi everyone, I'm Tammy Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a show that looks at some of the challenges leaders face today and what you can do about it to ensure you succeed at driving your organization's efforts forward. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavern Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers both keynotes and corporate training events on various leadership topics like leadership development, organizational culture, and empowering employees. To learn more, visit our company's website at tavernasir.com. That's T-A-N-V-E-E-R-N-A-S-E-E-R.com. And discover why we've been recognized by Inc. Magazine as not only one of their top leadership experts, but also one of their top leadership speakers. And with that, let's meet my guest for this episode, Scott Miller. I think so many people want to be seen as a confident and competent leader. And when things get stormy, ask yourself, do you react the same way when things are calm? There's no question that being a leader is hard work in a very demanding role. But are there actions and behaviors leaders are employing that are actually impeding their ability to succeed in their role? That's the focus of my conversation with this episode's guest, Scott Miller. Scott is the Executive Vice President of Business Development and Chief Marketing Officer for Franklin Covey, a global consulting and training leader in the areas of strategy execution, customer loyalty, leadership, and individual effectiveness. Prior to joining Franklin Covey, Scott worked for the Disney Development Company, the real estate development division of the Walt Disney Company. He has a new book out called Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow, which is what Scott and I will be using as the focus of our conversation. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Scott, your book has probably one of the more interesting titles of the guests I've had on this show. So to help frame our conversation for our listeners, what's this management mess that you've made the focus of your book? Well, basically, it's the culmination of my career, which is a mess. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I wrote this book because I wanted to offer a different style of leadership book, one that was a little bit less academic and professorial. I wanted to write a book from someone who's been in the leadership business for 25 years and really call out in a vulnerable way. We've all got messes. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows your messes. Your mother-in-law does, your boss, your colleagues, the receptionist. So just own it. And use it kind of as currency, not to, not to stagnate, but to move towards success. So I wrote a book that I wanted to be very relatable and really start a conversation that allowed people to be more vulnerable about owning their messes and moving to successes. You know, I think you really succeeded in making your book relatable, Scott, because, you know, I have to compliment you because your book, you're so frank and honest about your own shortcomings as a leader of how you've struggled with some of the leadership challenges you write about. And even how some of them are still very much a work in progress. And that kind of self-reflection and self-awareness, although we often are encouraging leaders to develop those skill sets and develop that mindset, it's still not very common, especially in terms of leaders openly sharing it with the public as opposed to only within their organization's walls. Yeah, you know, to quote my wife, I'll probably never work again after this book. <laughs> so I got, I got to write some more books or speak like you. You know, I, I, a friend of mine, Rebecca Hessian, who's a consultant in Indianapolis, said to me once something that was prophetic. She said, you think they don't know. Yeah. They do. And it's so true. So, you know, I, I didn't set out to write a tell-all. You know, I'm, I'm an officer in an executive company. 
Franklin Covey with you know a stellar brand. I couldn't be more proud to have been here for two decades. And I just think there's great opportunity in the leadership space to really be authentic around, you know, what are your strengths? What are your talents? What are your struggles? We've all got messes. My whole career has been one step forward, two steps back. And so I thought I could write a book that would give voice to millions of people just like me. This book is not about mission and vision and values, although those things are super important. It's not about systems and structures and strategy. Those are important. It's really about kind of 30 challenges at all the space. So I just kind of write it in a very easy to read, non-academic style. And it sold out on Amazon last week. It was the number one new release in its category. Amazon had to buy more books. Walmart and Amazon are in a bidding war as to who can lower the price of Jesus. And that's a good sign. I think it's refreshing, you know, um, to check my own humility for a moment. I think people are really resonating with it. Well, you know, again, just to quote you, the the fact that you just said refreshing, I think that's exactly what people are finding with this book. It's that it's like no holds barred. You're being honest. And I mean, a lot of stuff I think is things that people, as we move up into leadership, we have that mentality, that mindset. But as you've said just now, people know, they see stuff. So we might be thinking we're hiding and, you know, I'm just being ambitious, but really it's that you're basically pushing people away and turning them away and turning them off. And as you point out, there are 30 challenges in your book, and obviously we can't cover them all. So what I thought I'd do, Scott, is just kind of grab a few of the ones that really caught my attention, and then we'll just kind of talk about them and see where that leads us. And the first one I want to touch on is that leadership challenge you call Carry Your Own Weather. Uh, What exactly does this mean, Scott, and why is this challenge important for leaders to address if they're going to be successful in their efforts? Sure. You know, that that term was popularized by our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who's the author of the seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, sold 30 million copies. And this really is around being proactive, is that, you know, proactive people choose to uh, base their response on their own values, not on other people or circumstances. It's a metaphor, obviously, that when you're grounded in your purpose, in your mission, when you're clear on your own values, you're less likely to be reactive to people that bother you. We all have those. To circumstances that aggravate you. To situations where you tend to react or have, you know, a snap decision. Influential leaders are very deliberate. They're calibrated in their emotions. Doesn't mean they're robotic. Doesn't mean they're rehearsed. It just means that you don't give over to anyone control over your emotions. And like all leadership principles, you know, I don't adopt it into my life every day. There are people who bug me that I find myself moving outside of how I want to behave or react. But it's a, I think it's a, it's, why it's a challenge, right? It's been a mess for me. I tend to be a very passionate, energetic, reactive person. I'm often lured into that by people. And I have to rise to the occasion to make sure that what I say today is what I wish I would have said tomorrow. What I'm thinking right now after I've gathered more facts is what I will hope to think an hour from now. So I put that up front as challenge six. because I think so many people want to be seen as a confident and competent leader. And when things get stormy, ask yourself, do you react the same way when things are calm? It's interesting. There's two things that came to mind when I read this chapter, Scott, and one of them has to deal with this notion that if we 
think about in terms of marketing initiatives, we always talk about how we have to create an emotional response because people are not going to make decisions from a rational perspective. They're going to make it from an emotional one. And yet when we talk about in leadership, we always tend to try to convince ourselves, no, I'm going to operate from this rational, fact-driven perspective. My conversations are always on point and taking into consideration what's really going on. And we kind of think that that emotional element is not applicable. And so that's why I really loved this section because, again, in one of some of my keynotes, especially the ones around my book, Leadership Vertigo, I talk about how neuroscience has shown our emotions are contagious. And consequently, as a leader, we're creating the emotional context by which our employees experience work. In fact, studies have shown that if your manager comes to work stressed, anxious, or have a negative temperament, the way your employees are going to view their work and the contributions will be from a negative outlook because they're getting this message from you that because of that negative temperament you have, that well, this work isn't as important as I think it is or as you said it was. And so you're actually encouraging them to devalue their contributions. So I think this is a really important thing for us to take note of. And as you pointed out, it's not to say starting today, I'm not going to do this, but understand that, you know, as emotional beings, we're going to slip up. But to be cognizant, going back to your point of how your employees know that we at least acknowledge and have that self-awareness. Yeah, I think you're you're, you're super insightful on that. I, people want to work for enthusiastic and, you know, positively contagious people. They also want to work for real people. Mm -hmm. They want to know they can relate to their leader, that their leader isn't, you know, the only genius in the room to quote our mutual friend, Liz Wiseman, they're the genius maker, that you don't have to have all the answers, that you're humble. The humility comes from confidence. Arrogant people aren't humble people. You know, confident people are humble people. And so I tried to have that come, come across in the nature of the book. And I'll tell you another thing we talked about when the boss comes in the office, you know, people that carry their own weather, when the boss comes in and doesn't say hi and goes into her office and closes the door, Half of us think, oh, crap, today's my day. I'm up. I'm getting fired. And the other half think, you know what? Maybe she's just having a fight with her 14-year-old daughter, right? It's just not going to It's not gonna wreck my day. Says easy, does hard. But I really encourage the people, don't build a false narrative in your head. Be confident in who you are. Be confident in your skills. Heck, be confident in your options. Don't let other people hijack your own sense of purpose and mental well-being. You know, Scott, just hearing you talk made me think already about another leadership challenge that I really like that you write about in your book, and that's the one called Check Your Paradigms. Again, it's one that's not as obvious based on its name about what it's about, but it's nonetheless critical to your ability to succeed as a leader. So what do you mean by check your paradigm, Scott? Yeah, so it's a popular term the last 20, 30 years, right? We all have mindsets, belief windows, paradigms that are inculcated in us since birth, right? Our parents... Our, our, our principals, our teachers, our neighbors, our aunts taught us to believe certain things about the world, about different cultures, religions, about different people. And we've come to believe those are true and rarely are they complete. Rarely are they true in an ever-changing world. I was raised in the early 70s in Central Florida from an upper middle class, very stable family, right? Beaver Cleaver. And I was taught to believe that parents, doctors, Police and Catholic priests are always right and always told the truth. We know that's insane, right? Catholic priests are not always right. Fortunately for me, I never had to put those things to the test. But as leaders, 
if we want to move from mess to success, we're constantly challenging our own entrenched paradigms. And I would encourage leaders to look at your team and and ask yourself, what is it you believe about about Lisa and Peter? And, And is it true? Is it complete? Can they earn their way into a new paradigm? One of my messes is if you're a 23-year-old event planner making $36,000 a year, you are always a 23-year-old event planner making 36 grand a year. Even if you're now a 40-year-old event planner making 140 grand a year, I tend to take a snapshot of people and I hold them in that forever and it's not fair to them. I don't give myself license to continue that. I'm aware of it. It's a mess that I share in the book. And so people change. The world changes. Are are you not compromising your values or your principles or your ethics, but are you mature enough to change your mind? I, I tell you, I do think great leaders are willing to change their mind, not hourly, not strategy by strategy, day by day, but are you nimble enough to give people a chance to grow into a new reality in your mind. Right, absolutely. And, you know, listening to you talk, Scott, and reading this chapter of your book, it made me think about that that pivot we've been seeing, unfortunately, happening in social media, where, you know, five, ten years ago, it was really uh, this unifying, equalizing force that gave a platform to voices and ideas that rarely got heard because they lacked the influence, the authority, or the size to get it on those radars. And now we're seeing it being more of an echo chamber where it's encouraging an isolation of thoughts and ideas that mirror our beliefs and biases. And as you said, why we have to check our paradigms. And I know there's a lot of tendency to think, well, this is just an issue that exists only in social media. I think the reality we have to recognize is that this influences both the way we think and the way we communicate. And as leaders, I think it's especially important that we are leveraging our influence, not to encourage those voices you agree with or reinforce your perspective. As you said, the example of the event planner, that that's the only thing that they'll ever be. We're not going to ever see them evolve and grow into something more. But, you know, get those voices and those people who are going to challenge how we think so we can fully understand the situation. Again, to your point, it's not about changing your values. It's about getting more information to better appreciate the situation. Are we to make sure that are we letting our own experiences or worse, our fears determine the course we take instead of perhaps gaining insights of perhaps what would be best for organization and even our community, even if it might lead to dealing with uncomfortable changes to the way we do things or see ourselves? I would even take it a step further. You know, like you, I host a podcast and I was interviewing the uh, Harvard medical professor, Susan David, wrote an amazing book called Emotional Agility. I mean, I like needed a therapist after our 30-minute interview. First of all, such a, a great mind and a gracious lady, Susan David. She talked about how you know we build in our minds these narratives that we think are true. They're not true. You know, we, we build in our minds perceptions of people because of one encounter or one project or one experience. If you're going to check your paradigm and challenge your own mindset, you've got to be willing to check what's true, what's not true. Do I have data? consistent information to support that? Or am I just operating out of fear? Am I building my own narrative kind of out of my own defense? Is the meeting really going to go that way? Or have I like willed it to go that way because I'm so you know amped up about the topic? I- I've learned to be a little more cautious, calm down, what's true, what's not true, and really, and really be more generous with people. Can, can they earn their way to change my paradigm? And sometimes the answer is no, 
shame on me. Right, right. And, you know, this actually is making me think, and it's a great segue to the next leadership challenge I want to talk to you about, Scott. And that's the leadership challenge of leading difficult conversations, which obviously this would be. Now, I don't think there's anyone out there who rubs their hands with glee over the idea of having a difficult conversation with an employee or a colleague. But as you write, you know, this is part of the job being a leader. So how can leaders embrace this part of their job? What can they do to not necessarily make it easier? but make it at least something they're less likely to fear that they'll mess up. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of my most passionate challenges in the book. I'm actually quite great at this. This is a success for me. But be mindful, all of our strengths can become weaknesses if played too hard, right? So this one also is a challenge for me because I, I tend to be so good at it that I sometimes go overboard. So I, I think it is first incumbent on every leader you do not deserve the role as leader if you're not willing to exercise the courage to lead difficult conversations. You have to be able to move outside of your comfort zone and discuss the undiscussables. Now, doing so in a way that is respectful, diplomatic, not so diplomatic that you, you know, obfuscate the, the issue, but that you talk straight with people. It might be about their productivity, their punctuality their competence, their character, their hygiene. I mean, I have had all those conversations, regardless of gender. I've discussed hygiene. I've discussed self-awareness. I've discussed collaboration. You know, as a leader, I think one of my biggest gifts to the people who worked for me is my willingness to summon the courage, close the door, move out from behind my desk into a safe space and say, listen, I have your best interest in mind. I want you to have a great career. I see a great path here for you. And you've got some behaviors that are tripping up your effectiveness, your brand, your legacy, whatever it is. I want to talk to you about them. I I might use the wrong words. I might not say it in the right way. Please pre-forgive me. Know that I've got your best interest at mind. And then I talk about what the issue at hand is. And I do it increasingly in a way that doesn't damage their self-esteem or their self-confidence or, God forbid, their self-worth, because you can take that too far. You can be too courageous. It's one of my challenges, right? I, I can be so courageous that I will literally verbally eviscerate someone because I want them to get it. So I've had to you know, move back and be a little more sensitive because I, I like to be told straight from my boss. I crave it. Not everybody likes that. So as a leader, if you neglect these conversations, shame on you. This is arguably your biggest contribution to your team members is talking straight and being the one person in their life that might have exercised the courage to tell them the things that their previous bosses were too cowardly to address. Right. You know, Scott, I love that answer. In fact, there are so many things that you, you just brought up that it made me feel like I'm, I feel like right now I'm trying to catch fireflies because I don't know which one I want to try to grab first. I'm, I'm going to start with the first one, which is I love the fact because I've, I've had this discussion with leaders as well, that when it comes to difficult conversations, it's really about how we approach in that conversation. And as you just said, if we're t- communicating to the employees and if we're really coming from this perspective of saying like, look, this is because I care. I care about wanting to help you become better, then the conversation, yes, it's hard, but at least it's coming from a perspective of not 
well, I just don't like the way you do this, right? So now it's about me. It's really about, I see the, this potential in you, and I want you to fulfill that potential. And the only way I can do that is through this form of tough love to help you push yourself to really be that better version who you can be. So when we come from that, yes, the conversation is still going to be hard, but both you and your the receiver of that conversation is going to appreciate because it it's coming from a perspective of, I want to help you. And when it's a conversation of helping somebody, it makes it easier for us to accept that this is going to be difficult for us to, to do. And I loved also the fact that you also said, I might not use the right words, because I think that's what you mentioned in your book that I really liked, is the fact that as leaders, yes, we can make a mess in having this difficult conversation, but as long as we're open about it, look, I might not get, as you said, the right words, I might not say this in the right way, but, and we should own up to that, saying, look, okay, maybe I didn't say it the right way, but that shouldn't be a reason for us to just back off. We should say, okay, let me try this again. Let me make sure you're understanding both my message as well as my intention. And I think that is such an incredibly important part of this process that I think if leaders were to recognize it would help make it easier for them to be willing to do it. Not the conversation itself will still be hard, but the willingness to do it becomes easier because we're recognizing, you know, even if I mess this up, as long as I'm truthful about, okay, maybe I didn't get say it right, I can still do this and try to help this employee become that stronger contributor in my organization. And you snuck it in there, Scott. And so it's one of the one of the leadership challenges. So let's let's dive in there. You said, please pre-forgive me. So what is pre-forgiveness, Scott? And how can this help us right the wrongs we'll inevitably make as leaders? Well, I think it's a profound concept. It was taught to me by the gentleman who hired me at Franklin Covey from my previous work at the Disney company. His name is Chuck Farnsworth, was the vice president of our education division. And Chuck ran the education division. And he operated on something I didn't even, had never even heard of, which was called a pre-forgiveness culture. Chuck empowered everyone. He said to us, listen, you're going to make mistakes, right? You're going to ship the wrong order. You're going to quote the wrong price to a client. I don't want you living in fear. By the way, please don't ship the wrong things to clients. And please don't quote the wrong prices. He wasn't giving us license to make mistakes. He was giving us permission to take risks and to build the business and to serve the client. So I think because Chuck created this culture of pre-forgiveness, you're going to make mistakes. Don't worry about it. Now, when you do, do me the courtesy of coming and telling me immediately so that if it is a big mistake, as your leader, I can help you fix it. I can help you unwind it because the longer you hide it from me, the more you limit my options, right? I mean, I've been the victim as a sales manager of many salespeople forecasting wrong and then not really telling me and owning up to it to the last moment. And it completely eliminated all of my levers, you know, to pull in you know, opportunities from other clients and make my commit to my boss. So I think when a leader establishes a pre-forgiveness culture, it doesn't mean you give license for people to be late or untrustworthy or sloppy or incompetent. I think the exact opposite happens. It gives people the license to give you their best because, you know, most of us don't want to cash that shit in with our boss, right? I I don't want to have to go to my boss and say, listen, I took a liberty, I made a bet and it failed. Now, if you want to build a culture that is innovative and nimble and growing, then you've got to give people the opportunity to take risks, calibrated risks, 
truck farms where it gave everybody the right to uh, comp or credit a client up to fifteen, uh, up to five hundred dollars on the spot. That was that was you know a nice amount of money when the average consulting arrangement was you know six seven thousand dollars. I don't think I did it twice in five years. But that that idea of pre forgiving, you know, it goes into our personal lives. Pre forgive your spouse. Pre forgive your kids. Pre forgive your mother in law. Right. I mean, you know, we're all just trying to move from mess to success. Everybody has fears, insecurities. Everybody's got a secret life. Everyone's got stuff going on they're struggling with. Be kinder. Be more gentle. Don't just forgive. Pre-forgive. I love it. And, you know, this kind of reflects something we see a lot in leadership literature, which is providing employees with the permission to fail. And that's exactly what this is. But I think it also reflects another element, which is engendering trust, right? By creating this culture of pre-forgiveness, we're creating trust that, you know, look, I know you're going to make mistakes, but I trust that you're going to learn from this and you're going to do your best. And I don't think when you create that kind of condition, because I'm sure some people are going to think, well, how do I know? And as you said, that employees are going to take advantage of this. I think it's because as an employee, if you know your leader is giving you this trust up front in a sense that, look, I hired you because I believe in your potential. I believe you have something to contribute. You don't want to let that trust down. In fact, when I was reading this chapter, Scott, it reminded me of one of the best bosses I ever worked with, someone I have written about on the lessons of leadership he taught me. Not only was he forgiving when I'd make a mistake, largely because he knew I'd learn from it going forward, but he never shied away from admitting when he made a mistake. And it didn't matter how trivial it might seem. He didn't hesitate to own it. And I firmly believe that's one of the reasons why he engendered such loyalty among us. All of us knew he put us before his ego of his being right over doing right by us. And so I think this is such an important element. I mean, we can talk about, oh, well, we value failure in organization and we give people permission to fail. But if we don't have, like you say, this culture of pre-forgiveness and with it engendering the sense of trust, I think we're really just giving lip service and you actually are going to erode trust because people can't say that they necessarily believe what you're telling them. Amen. No follow-up to that. Nicely done. Now, I still have, because I scribbled it down, there's something else you said in your earlier answer when we were talking about the leadership challenge of difficult conversations, and you mentioned how you have no problem being courageous. And I've written about courage and leadership, but I love the angle that you've taken because you have a leadership challenge that you call balance, courage, and consideration. And I love this idea that we have to create this balance between having the courage to, uh, let's say, take a stand on an issue or in support of an initiative you believe will help your organization grow and creating those spaces for divergent voices to share their perspective and challenge how you see things. So how do we strike this balance? And more importantly, how do we know we're riding that line between showing conviction for what we know is best for organization while at the same time allowing for people to feel heard and understood? Yeah, you know, this is a Franklin Covey concept, but all of these 30 challenges, you know, come from Franklin Covey's, you know, 40 years of leadership development solutions. So this concept, again, popularized by Stephen Covey, is, you know, if you met the kind of leader that just kind of prides himself in, you know, telling it like it is, letting the chips fall where they may, and kind of, you know, the, throwing the proverbial grenade in the room and kind of, you know, running off. And I think it's a very selfish person that just tells it like it is 
without regard for the other person's self-esteem or just, you know, how they feel. You can be courageous with people and leave them better off than when you found them. And that takes good intent. It takes love. It takes care. It takes empathy to really balance your tendency for being courageous with the necessity to show consideration for the other person. You know, I was interviewing recently Kim Scott. She wrote the book um, Radical Candor. And back when Kim Scott worked for Google, she was reporting to um, Sheryl Sandberg. And Kim Scott was in a meeting with, I think it was Larry Page and some other executives at Google giving this presentation. And Sheryl Scott or Sheryl Sandberg was in the room. And um, when she left, Sheryl Sandberg asked Kim Scott, so how do you think that went? And Kim Scott talked about how confident she was and how great she was. And Cheryl kind of laid her out in a delicate way and said, you know how many ums I counted in there and how many you knows and how you used your arms? And, and Kim Scott was kind of horrified. But she was so grateful to Cheryl Sandberg for having the courage, but yet the diplomacy in a private moment to say, these things you're doing, saying, you know, you know, and like, and she said, and he said, and, and all these vocalized pauses, ums and us. Kim, it's, it's, it's reducing your credibility. It's minimizing your brand. And I love that Kim Scott shares what a gift that Cheryl Sandberg had both the courage and the consideration to call her aside, ask her how it went, and then move outside of her own comfort zone to really give Kim Scott this feedback. And these are senior executives at Google that are really caring about each other's brands. Say what you will about you know, what's going on at Facebook. I really have an appreciation for Cheryl Sandberg's leadership style as taught, you know, told by Kim Scott. Great leaders demonstrate a balance of courage and giving feedback to people while still showing considerations for the fact that they're human. And they have idiosyncrasies and fears. And you build trust and confidence in someone when they know that you have their best interest at heart. Love it. You know, and that's a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier about leading difficult conversations, right? That conversation for many of us, we might think, oh, I don't know how to tell this person that they were really not coming off well because they had so much hesitancy and, and these vocal pauses that it just basically diminished their authority. But if we're doing it from the perspective of, yes, I know this is going to be hard for the person here, but I want them to know this so that they can improve, they can work on developing their communication skills to become stronger because they have something important to share and people should be paying attention and taking notice. I think that's this is a great example of that very notion of uh, leading those difficult conversations, Scott. So thanks for sharing that story. And this leads me to actually the last leadership challenge that I want to talk with you about. And it's the leadership challenge about celebrating wins. You know, again, Scott, in one of my leadership keynotes, I share this idea of how important it is for us to celebrate wins as a way to foster a sense of belonging and connectedness amongst our employees so that they're not looking at their contributions in isolation, but as part of this larger vision, this shared purpose that derives our collective efforts. And I do get pushback from leaders when they talk about how celebrating wins is important because they'll say, well, we don't have the time, we don't have the resources, or our employees wouldn't be into this. So I know why this is important, but Scott, help me to encourage leaders listening to us right now on why they need to do it. I'm so delighted that you called this one out because this one 
I am uh, disproportionately passionate about. And I think it's one that I'm actually the best at in the entire book. This one is a rare success in the midst of all my messes. I think too often, highly educated, smart, disciplined, even workaholic leaders think that contributing professionals don't want to have fun or laugh or celebrate. You know, the fact of the matter is that for the majority of us, we spend more time in the office with our colleagues than we do awake with our family. And if you want to recognize that math, you've got to make it great for me to work here because, because the recruiters are calling. And as a leader, if you don't think your people are being poached multiple times a day, you are wrong. People quit their bosses, not their jobs, and they quit their culture. So as a leader, you're a fool not to always be in re-recruitment mode. And it's too late when someone's got an offer and they're coming back to you to match it because now they're just playing you for money typically. So great leaders recognize people want to win. They want to celebrate. It doesn't mean you, you know, you pop a confetti cannon because someone came to work on time, right? I mean, you're not going to celebrate things that are idiotic. Your credibility will be low. But celebrate goal achievement. Make sure that your goals are attainable. I, I know the style of leader that is a high-performance leader where if you actually accomplish a goal, if you win, you lose. Because if you accomplish it, it means the goal was set too low. Poppycock. That's insanity. Set goals that are stretch goals that people can accomplish, that they know if they've won. You know, too often high-performance leader will, leaders will just, you know, lather on more goals and you don't take the time to recognize we won. People need a, people need a break, even if it's for one day or one hour or one meeting. Call out the wins. Not every single win. Not every time someone swallowed their food or came to work, you know, but I mean, be deliberate with it. And it doesn't have to cost money. I, I love to celebrate. I, I'm known as kind of the confetti guy. I, 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 have, I have blown tens of millions of pieces of confetti in the room with a purpose. Every one was a client's life we were touching worldwide. But you don't have to have money to celebrate. You can very thoughtfully. Gather everyone around the conference table and one by one deliberately call out what was each person's contribution and why was it so valuable. And I've done that. And I share in the book the fact that I did that and I didn't always call out everybody's contribution. I actually sometimes skipped over people by accident and it actually destroyed culture. It didn't build culture. So be deliberate both in what you celebrate it, how frequently. And, and, and with everyone, but do not underestimate everybody's desire to think and understand and know, are they winning and feel valued? Because when they go back to their desk, they're being recruited by lots of people on LinkedIn and ladders and Glassdoor, you name it everywhere. You've got to always be re-engaged with re-recruiting your talent. Great point and great insight there too, Scott. And you know, the other interesting thing that I also get for pushback on this is, well, you know, if we celebrate our wins, that's going to get people to basically rest on their laurels. They're not going to be as driven. And I always counter with saying how, have you ever watched any sports team that diehard fans follow when they win the championship? I'll give you an example that everyone here in Canada is talking about the Toronto Raptors, even though they just won 
the NBA championship. There's talk still happening of, all right, are we going to do this again next year? So there is no resting of laurels. People are not like saying, okay, well, that's it. We won one, so now we can pack it up and go. Everyone's now feeling even more energized in the belief not only can they win possibly next year, but now saying, is there a possibility to open up new franchises in other Canadian cities? And that's what celebrating wins do. It empowers people to believe in their potential to say, look what we did in here, let's do it again, as well as looking for other opportunities where they can achieve wins that they wouldn't have thought of otherwise had we not taken the time to celebrate that win. I'd love to comment on that. I, I'll just call it out. I think it's a sick culture, like an unhealthy, dysfunctional culture, corrupt culture. If there's a thought that if we celebrate, people will slack off or rest on your laurels. I, I think you've got either the wrong leaders, right. you've got the wrong CEO, or you got the wrong people. Because my level of engagement, I get to choose. As a leader, you don't choose my level of engagement. You set the conditions for me to choose a high level or a low level. But I, I, as my own self-motivation proves, I'm gonna choose my own level of, of, of engagement based on the culture of the organization. So I would really be careful. You can celebrate too much. You also can celebrate too little. So be thoughtful about how you wanna motiv motivate people. But I do not think, I, I, I don't know anybody in my organization, not a single person, that would slack off because we'd celebrated. I think driven people, if screened carefully, get more motivated when they know they know they're winning and they're on to achieve and contribute a higher level the next round, including if the next round is tomorrow. Absolutely, totally agree with you there, Scott. Okay, Scott. So you know, at the end of my show, I like to encourage my guests to share one takeaway they want listeners to leave with. Now. We obviously couldn't cover all 30 leadership challenges you write about in your book. So is there something you want to point out as food for thought for our listeners? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. You know, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned from Stephen Covey, he's passed now about seven years, was an icon for me, a coach, a mentor. Uh, Stephen Covey was the real deal. He's one of those few iconic leaders that was living, in my estimation, as congruent as possible with what he did, with what he said. And one of the great lessons he taught me was the value of slowing down. I'm a very uh, productive, energetic person. I like to get things done, check things off my list. And I tend to have what he calls an efficiency mindset versus an effectiveness mindset. And that in relationships, in our personal lives, in our professional lives, to quote Dr. Covey, with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. And if you wanna develop high trust, high rewarding relationships where people give it their all, you gotta slow down. Take your time with people. Listen, don't interrupt. Move off your own agenda and your own timeline. Take the time to understand what's going on in their life. You know, everybody's got pressures. They've got bills that are late. They've got tuition due. They've got a car repair they can't afford. Some people are eating popcorn on Thursday because the paycheck's coming on Friday. Some people that work for you put $4 of gas in their car today. They did not fill up their tank because they're not where you are. 
check your paradigm about are you efficient or are you effective? Do you really know what's going on in your people's lives? And is there a way you can help them? Because when you can reduce stress in someone's personal life, the loyalty, the respect that will build in your culture is unmatched. Right. It's the power of relationships and leadership. Well said. You know, Scott, again, I said at the start of our conversation, but I want to say it again. I have to compliment you and how frank you are in your book about the mistakes and failures you've had as a leader. Again, while I could see this being something that leaders can and should be doing with their employees, it really is something different to share these with the public at large. So kudos to you for your willingness to share your experience to help the rest of us learn to become our own best version of the kind of leader we can and should be. Hey, it's my pleasure. I hope the book uh, is, is well-received by your listeners. I, I mentioned it's been sold out on Amazon. It's back on. I'm hoping to hit the bestseller list. I think if you buy the book, you'll find the stories a little bit shocking at times, respectful, but I think relatable. I've just laid out my messes in the hopes to empower people to identify with them, not all of them, but some of them, and to own their mess because I think vulnerability is going to be a leadership competency that rises swiftly on the leadership landscape and allows people to connect with their employees like they've not maybe been able to in the past. Wholeheartedly agree with you there, Scott, 100%. Well, well said. Thanks so much for coming on my show, Scott. This has been really great. I really enjoyed talking with you about this. Right for me. So Scott and I covered a lot of ground in this episode, and we only touched on a handful of the 30 leadership challenges he writes about in his book. So if you want to learn more about Scott's book and to check out some of my articles that expand on what Scott and I talked about today, just head on over to tanvernasir.com slash LBC. That's T-A-N-V-E-E-R-N-A-S-E-E-R.com slash LBC, where you'll find the show notes for this episode and all past episodes of this podcast. And that's a wrap for this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, brought to you by Tanvernasir Leadership. Looking for a keynote speaker or corporate trainer for your next event? Then visit our company's website at tavernasir.com and discover why we've been recognized by Inc. Magazine as not only one of their top leadership experts, but also one of their top leadership speakers. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and review my podcast on whatever app or platform you listen to this show on. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Player FM, to name just a few. You can find links to these as well as past episodes on my website at tamvinasir.com LBC. And if you'd like to reach out with ideas or possible guests for the show, just fill out the contact form on my website. This is Tamvinasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.